I am a snoot. It, it, it stands for uh, a syntax nerds of our time. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On today's special subscriber-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Scalia portrayed himself as methodical and apolitical, obsessed with carefully applying the Constitution as it was written and understood at the time of the founding. But in practice, Scalia was a faithful product of the hyper-conservative Federalist Society, and he enthusiastically pursued their political agenda from the bench. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have conquered the peaceful island of our liberties, like the Moors conquered Sicily. Mm. I am Peter. <laughs> I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi, everybody. Thought we might want to give some Sicilian flavor. <laughs> oh, okay. I see it. I see what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I thought, what was the worst thing to happen to Sicily? And I did that. Arabs came. Yeah, I was going to say brown people. That's right. That's right. That's, that is what Antonin Scalia would say. That's what his answer would be. Uh, it's like that or uh, or like deep dish pizza. One of the two. <laughs> right. Welcome to our first subscribers only premium episode. Our plan, generally speaking, is to keep our case episodes free and then focus our bonus content on some bigger picture, more thematic stuff including episodes about justices, but also episodes about uh, things like originalism, textualism, uh, the big picture stuff, you know? We run out of that, uh, my favorite movies. Yeah. We're going to, at one point, review one of those fucking RBG movies, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. and, and Michael Clayton, for sure. <laughs> <That'll be> <laughs> so today we're starting off with a bang. This episode is about Justice Antonin Scalia. Bow, 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 bow. That's an air horn. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are having way too much fun. Everybody settle the fuck down. Never. I will not settle down. I'm just starting drinking. It's going to get worse. Oh, God. <laughs> Scalia was central to the conservative legal myth-making project of the late 20th century, arguably the single most influential Supreme Court justice in history. He was absolutely beloved on the right, not merely for his hardline conservatism, but for his ability to hide it behind a veneer of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Scalia was also beloved by the right because he was famously an asshole in his opinions and often <laughs> reveled in the cruelty of the outcomes that he was endorsing. Scalia's project was to present the law as if it could be separated from ideology and politics, separated from judgments based on moral and ethical values, and could instead be simply solved almost algorithmically. Yeah, Mm-hmm. That is the single most dangerous lie about the law that has ever been told in our view. And Scalia himself is proof of that, uh, because when you take a step back and look at his jurisprudence, it's not restrained. It's not originalist. It's not textualist. It's just conservative. Right. Right. So before we get into his philosophies and uh, some of his opinions, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the man. You know, what was he like? Yeah. Re, tell us about his life. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Nino. Okay. So uh, Antonin Scalia was born an only child. Yep. Yep. I knew it. <laughs> uh, likely because his mother's womb was barren after incubating this absolute pariah. Uh, Antonin Gregory Scalia was born in Trenton, New Jersey in March 1936. Gregory. I was talking to you guys about this all week because I always forget that his middle name is Gregory. He goes by Nino and it feels it feels like there's a contrast there. Like he's this he's really <laughs> leaning into the Italian. He's Absolutely. Like, My name is a Nino. And, you know, and someone's like, oh, what's your middle name? He's like, uh, Greg, Greg, Greg. <laughs> it's just Greg. <laughs> Raised a devout Catholic, really underlining devout here. Raised a devout Catholic. A classmate in high school said of Antonin Scalia, quote, this kid was a conservative when he was 17 years old, an arch conservative <laughs> Catholic, end quote. 
Scalia went to Georgetown University for college, and then he graduated from Harvard Law in 1960. Um, he started his career actually at the international law firm known today as Jones Day, but he said he always wanted to teach. So he got a professor of law job at UVA um, in 1967. Now, in 1971, it is said that his uh, life of public service began when he was appointed to a general counsel position in the famously honorable and law-abiding Nixon administration. Um, And then in the late 70s, he took up residence as a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, which is, you know, a famously conservative economics and law focused institution. But he was actually almost immediately eyeing a spot center stage in the Reagan administration. So he's not at the University of Chicago Law School for very long. He first had his heart set on the position of Solicitor General of the United States. He didn't get that spot, probably because he's a fucking loser. And he was pissed about it for the rest of his life, like losers are. (laughs) And instead, a little bit later on, he was offered a seat on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal appellate court that sits in Chicago. But he held out because he wanted the spot on the D.C. Court of Appeals. And he got that nomination in late 1982. He was bitter. He had his temper tantrum about it and he got what he wanted. He wanted to go for the slightly more prestigious court. That's right. And a few years later, in 1986, he was nominated to the Supreme Court and became an associate justice. Mm -hmm. Now, setting aside his professional career for a minute, um, just want to note again on, on sort of his continued religiosity and conservatism in his personal life. When I say devout Catholic, I mean devout. Okay, Scalia married his wife, Maureen, in 1960, just after he graduated from law school, and the couple would have nine children together. Scalia disallowed wearing jeans, like wearing denim at home, and he was known to drive the whole family, you know, wife and nine kids in tow to church, like actually like a long distance so that they could all attend mass in Latin. I have to say, I agree that if you let children wear informal pants around the home, (laughs) it's a slippery slope to a level of moral decay that becomes unacceptable. You know, yeah. I will right. require my children to be in pleated pants and suspenders and little t- and little hats, little newsy hats <laughs> until, until the age of 15. One thing I kept, you know, I, I kept listening to podcasts and reading articles about Scalia, especially after he died. And the phrase that everyone used to describe him was larger than life. And I was telling you guys about this, that I feel like this is a phrase that people use to describe other people who are loud at parties. Um <laughs> Uh, You know, they're like, what was he like? And someone was like, oh, he was is larger than life. And I immediately just imagine someone who's like had two more drinks than everyone else at the party and is just like (laughs) shouting and and, uh, about something that no one else cares about. And like, yeah, large, larger than life. Right. But I mean, he was a big drinker. This is known. (laughs) Uh, And on the topic of his consumption, Michael, you had just the (laughs) the best story. Yes. When he died, I was I was reading like the articles about him and I found one that was titled uh, A Man of Many Appetites. It was like <laughs> a eulogy. And I was like, OK, this is interesting because I thought I would get like, you know, some insight into like the things Antonin Scalia likes, like what right. he likes to do. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. An appetite for an ad- adventure or travel or something. Right. Right. But the article, the article is just like, this dude can fucking eat, man. This dude can pack it away. <laughs> like, it was literally like, it was that some like wine tasting where you had all you could eat oysters. And the guy's like, I ate 43 oysters and Scalia had like so many more than me. Oh my it God. It was insane. And we drank 20 wines. It was like 20 wine tastings. And then afterwards, everybody was stuffed. And Scalia was like, let's get dinner and order the full dinner and got a bunch of beers. (laughs) It's so insane. This is the guy, by the way, there is a conspiracy theory on the right that he did not die of natural causes. Right. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is how it goes on the right. There's always there's always a conspiracy theory about everyone important who dies. And people are like a 79 year old just drops dead out of nowhere. (laughs) The BMI of real mystery how this fucking dude who's been chugging wine and oysters for 50 years like a vacuum 
just suddenly passed away at ne- nearly 80. If like the cholesterol that was clogging his arteries wasn't like sending his blood pressure through the roof on its own, the fact that he seemingly was angry yeah. all the time had yeah. to have been doing it right. too. Right. This guy yeah. was like red-faced mad like constantly. Yeah. Constantly. But joking about his ridiculous character aside, Rhiannon was talking about him throwing a temper tantrum because, you know, the court position he got offered wasn't prestigious enough. And right around the same time that he got nominated to the D.C. Circuit, he was also uh, instrumental in founding the Federalist Society, which is, um, you know, as listeners of the podcast will know, a sort of massive and very powerful right wing legal organization. Yeah. And so it was founded in 1982 and it was like some dipshits at Yale who like just were tired of being like sneered at by their classmates and wanted to like own their lib law professors. And so they invited this, you know, guy from, you know, Chicago law school who they thought was just like hot shit because he would like make their law professors uncomfortable. And it was Scalia and he loved it. He loved the event. It got a ton of engagement from conservative law students. And, you know, he was such an obvious careerist, right? Absolutely. Aiming for the solicitor general Mm -hmm. spot, holding out for like prestigious clerkships. And the Federal Society was no different. It was like immediately viewed as like a way for conservatives to advance their career. Like that's what they were thinking about it from the start, from day one. He was helping them raise money and make connections to build out a conservative network that would grow into the monster uh, that it is today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting, like how he was so central to uh, starting this organization that we know has so much influence today. And then like hearing how he was actually on the job in terms of like interactions with his own colleagues and his clerks. So there are lots of great stories that are basically rumors, right? Um, yeah. And it's it's important to know that we wanted to take this opportunity to tell you some rumors, mostly because I feel like a lot of like the professional attorneys who do other legal podcasts and like write legal and legal publications <laughs> yes. and shit don't have it in them to uh, spread some gossip. But we do. Right. You know, I feel like you, yeah. got, you guys can right. just figure it out. For you. Is it true? I don't know. Do some research, you know, make some calls. Right. If we're ever before the Supreme Court, we're in so much shit already <laughs> that this won't matter at all. So so a couple of stories definitely uh, stick out to me in terms of like how Antonin Scalia was uh, interacted with his clerks when he was on the Supreme Court. So there's one story about going out to lunch with the justices. So I think, you know, traditionally, when you clerk at the Supreme Court, there is the tradition. It's expected that the justices who you don't specifically clerk for, there will be a day when, you know, that justice takes all of the clerks out for lunch. So if you're clerking for Scalia, well, Justice Thomas is going to take the Scalia clerks out for lunch one day, right? Well, I think this has been rumored more than once that on the day when Scalia would take out the clerks for other justices on the Supreme Court, he would not pay for that <laughs> meal. Okay, so we just got through talking about how this man is an absolute fucking garbage glutton and then refuses to pay for lunch for fresh out of law school. He got like two steaks and a burger uh, and a bottle of wine. And he's like, we're going halvesies, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. And then there's another story, which is about Scalia's showering habits when he was on the court. So, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States has, uh, you know, the building is huge, has lots of facilities for the justices of the Supreme Court. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously worked out at the gym that was at the Supreme Court, stuff like that. So they also have shower facilities for the justices. And apparently it was a thing, right, that Scalia would shower every day at the Supreme Court, but then walk around his chambers in his towel. I like refuse to believe this is true. If you are a clerk, please reach out to us and let us know if this is true. I just like cannot, I cannot imagine that this is 
You can't see his stupid piggy little face with the towel wrapped around his head and he's like sweaty and red faced from the sauna. I can picture him at the desk in a towel. Absolutely. I just I don't understand how he gets from the locker room area to his office. That's what I'm confused about. He puts his flippy floppies on and he walks through the building, Peter. He's got that old guy energy who like like men's locker rooms. They're just these old dudes who are like just fucking they like make a point of doing as much naked as possible. And he's got that energy for sure. Look, we we know that former Supreme Court clerks, at the very least, listen to this podcast. Reach out. Let <laughs> right, us know. Right. Please confirm this. I will say stiffing the clerks on lunch story comes from lib clerks. And uh, so yeah. I would have put it past him to, to pick up the bill <laughs> for the, the conservative clerks. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. Good point. Okay, before we move on to the judicial philosophies and and get into the academic bullshit of this. Before we get serious. Yeah, we have to talk about a little place called Ass Law. So (laughs) in 2016, after um, Scalia died, the law school at George Mason University was offered $30 million to rename itself after Scalia. School officials announced that the new name of the law school at George Mason University would now be called Antonin Scalia School of Law. And then every law student in America collectively <laughs> laughed until they cried because, folks, that abbreviates to ass law. OK, they named their school ass law when this motherfucker died. It's uh, and that's gorgeous. I think it's a beautiful tribute. <laughs> a few days later, people over at George Mason were like, oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. And they were forced to announce that, like, no, just kidding, because the real name, <laughs> the real name is now going to be Antonin Scalia Law School. So A-S-L-S rather than ass law. Crisis averted. <laughs> yeah. It'll always be ass law in my heart. Yeah, ass law forever in our hearts. All right, let's let's get a little academic, shall we? Yes. So let's talk about his philosophies a little bit. Scalia was closely affiliated with three separate but related judicial philosophies. Uh, the first is judicial restraint, the idea that judges should be cautious before intervening and making new rules, especially on more political issues, politically charged issues. Right. The second is originalism, the idea that we should interpret the Constitution based on its original meaning. And the third is textualism, the idea that we should interpret laws based on their text. These ideas intertwine to form Scalia's overarching philosophy, which is that the law can be solved. Yeah. That if you simply adhere to these rules, you can determine the correct answers to legal questions. Yeah, like a math problem, right? Yeah. Like put in the variables and then there's an answer. His philosophy is a sieve and if you pour in the legal issue, out comes the accurate answer, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, as we've mentioned, you know, dozens of times on this podcast, this idea is fundamentally flawed. There is no correct method of legal interpretation. There are just methods that weigh different concerns differently, right? Some might weigh the text of a law more heavily because they believe it reduces room for error, while another might weigh the legislator's intent more heavily because they believe the purpose of the law is what matters most. You might prefer one of those methods to the other, But it's inherently absurd to say that one is objectively correct, right? They're just reflecting different priorities. Right. And Scalia's priority is reactionary politics. And maybe, you know, more to the point, no one, including Scalia, has ever consistently applied these philosophies anyway. Yeah. And to make that clear, I think we should start from the top with judicial restraint. Yeah. Yeah. So something uh, Justice Scalia talked a lot about and and supposedly adhered to was this principle known as judicial restraint. And judicial restraint is a theory about judicial power. You know, whereas originalism and textualism, which we'll talk about in a minute, those are methods of interpretation. Judicial restraint is more an idea about how judges use the power of the judiciary branch. And basically, the idea is that judges should be deferential to the legislature and to the executive when the Constitution grants those bodies with the power to make law and policy, not the judiciary. Right. So if Scalia was defining judicial restraint, he might say something like when Congress makes a law under the authority granted to it by the Constitution, we, meaning judges, presume that that law is constitutional and we would need to be shown otherwise before striking a law down. 
You know, put differently, Congress doesn't send drafts of its laws to the judiciary for judges to put their stamp of approval on. It's solely Congress's power to make laws and judges only interpret those laws when asked to. But it's important to note, though, like while we can have a long, boring discussion about what judicial restraint really means and when and how that principle should animate the work of adjudication, judicial restraint as a concept has like been megaphoned through the culture wars by conservatives. And Scalia was no different. Right. Conservative politicians since the 1970s have talked about our need to rise up against so-called activist judges who were deciding cases based on their personal beliefs rather than the law. Right. That's a main criticism of the Earl Warren court of the 50s and 60s. And ever since Scalia was on the court, conservatives have pointed to him as this model of like strict constructionist judging. And for his part, like Justice Scalia was absolutely salivating at the opportunity to embrace this role of hero. Right. But judicial restraint is just a theory. It's just an approach. And what made Scalia an essential part of the conservative culture war on the law in these days was how he weaponized these theories in popular understandings. Right. Judicial restraint became like a normative ideal. It was it was the mantle that they took up. Liberal judges are advocates and partisans and good judges like Justice Scalia are not those things. So one example is in 2005, the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty for people under 18. They said it's unconstitutional to execute anybody who is a child. And Scalia went on a tirade in dissent about how the majority was using the idea of a living constitution where judges could just make the laws that they think are better than the laws made by legislatures. <laughs> He's so fucking crazy. Yeah. So you see how in a lot of these cases, Scalia is more interested in advertising his ideology rather than really engaging with, you know, what the Constitution has to say about executing children. Right. And again, the whole idea of judicial restraint is deference to the democratically elected branches in their lawmaking powers. But the court's conservative majority, while Scalia was on the court, they regularly overturned laws passed by Congress. I mean, we've talked about it in a lot of our episodes. Right. They struck down parts of VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. They struck down parts of the Gun Free School Zones Act in Shelby County. They gutted the Voting Rights Act. Right. And, you know. The portion of the Voting Rights Act that Scalia voted to overturn in Shelby County passed the Senate 98 to 0, right? Yep. So when we're talking about deference to the legislature, uh, I mean, if there was ever a situation where you should be deferential, uh, one where you see something that's close to unanimously passing the United States Senate should be that. I, I will say in Scalia's defense, though, do we really want the federal government making sure women are free from violence? <laughs> there are no guns in schools or that people have access to the ballot. That's I don't know. I think he's got a point. I'm very skeptical. <laughs> Michael is bludgeoning us with exactly the point, right? Which is that Antonin Scalia was primarily concerned with his policy preferences and with conservative political uh, results and not with, you know, sort of in good faith engaging with these philosophies, right? And, you know, back specifically to the idea of judicial restraint, which supposedly Scalia was such a champion of, you know, Bush v. Gore, our very first episode that we covered on this podcast, it's a classic example. The court's conservative block in Bush v. Gore shits all over Florida state courts and they stopped the vote counting in Florida. And also, while they were at it, they declared that their ruling wouldn't be a precedent for future cases. Like, there's no explanation for where that authority comes from. In a 2005 New Yorker profile, Scalia is asked directly to explain the Bush v. Gore ruling. And all he says is, quote, the only issue was whether we should put an end to it after three weeks of looking like a fool in the eyes of the world, end quote. And like, that's not a constitutional <laughs> argument. No. That's blatant defense of judicial yes. activism, which he was supposedly against. So on to originalism. Originalism, in short, is the idea that our interpretation of the Constitution should be guided by the original meaning of the document, uh, that it should be interpreted now as it would have been at the time of the founding or at the time of the drafting. There are a lot of little academic debates about the exact definition of originalism, but we can sort of leave it at that for now. And the purpose 
is that originalists want our interpretation of the Constitution to be sort of tied down to something, right? So that it's not just reflecting the judge's preferences, right? That we're sort of tethered to something uh, and you can't deviate from it too much. Scalia was not a historian. He's not <laughs> yeah. a uh, etymologist or a linguist. And yet he believed himself capable of determining the correct meaning of centuries-old constitutional provisions based on using historical, etymological, and linguistic analysis. <laughs> right. right. This leads to circumstances like in D.C. v. Heller, which we did an episode on, where Scalia and Stevens are having this lengthy, tedious back-and-forth debate about the meaning of the Second Amendment, despite neither of them being remotely qualified to draw conclusions from their analysis. Right. And after that decision came down, multiple historians uh, <laughs> pointed out various flaws in both opinions. So you have these lawyers who are just outright pretending to be capable of doing these complex historical analyses. And the scope of our constitutional rights is predicated on what they come up with. Right. right? The whole point of originalism, again, is ostensibly to prevent judges from running wild with their own preferences and, you know, sort of tether them to something measurable. Right. Right. But there are so many areas where 200 plus years of social and political and economic and technological and cultural development have rendered the world we live in so distinct from the world of the founding that attempts to draw parallels is really just an exercise in pure guesswork. Right. And that's if you're operating in good faith. You know, Scalia really wasn't, and which is why his so-called uh, like originalist Second Amendment analysis just so happens to echo the position of the NRA right. at the time. Very right? convenient. Yeah. <laughs> and what that means is that for all of Justice Scalia's bloviating and condescension on the topic, his originalism simply does not solve the problem that it claims to solve. Yeah, exactly. Like in terms of trying to draw parallels, like in a recent case about GPS tracking, you know, he had a debate with another justice about like imagining a tiny constable hiding in like a carriage, sure. <laughs> right. like a horse as, as an carriage. analog to GPS. Right. Oh, my God. Like this is the mode of analysis that, you know, this is the level of discourse at the Supreme Court right. of the United States. Right. You do a huge rip of the bong and you're like, all right. So what if there was just this tiny guy? <laughs> and, you yeah. know. Maybe the most obvious flaw with originalism is that it ends up binding us to, like, these profoundly outdated morals mm -hmm. and ideas, right? Scalia really enjoyed this aspect of originalism uh, for one simple reason. He could hide his own disgusting reactionary views about minorities, yes. LGBTQ yes. people, and women behind the, you know, the veil of a supposedly objective mm -hmm. philosophy. And yep. so he sneers at the idea that the Constitution protects abortion or gay rights, and yeah. he could write opinions dripping with hate for those rights, and he could frame it as if, in a way, it's not actually him doing it, right? right? He's just adhering to this objective framework that tells him what the laws are, and his hands are tied. But of course, we should not be bound by whether the drafters of the Constitution thought it protected gay rights, for example, right? Sure. right? The, the drafters of the Constitution, and I mean this sincerely, didn't even know what homosexuality was. Right. 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 Uh, like, obviously, they understood the phenomenon of same-sex attraction existed. That's right. right? Yes. Much like someone 7,000 years ago could gaze up at the sun and note that something seems to be there <laughs> and that it is providing heat and light. Right. right. But they don't meaningfully understand it. Right. Just like the drafters didn't meaningfully understand homosexuality. Right. They didn't understand it biologically, sociologically. Mm -hmm. They had no idea what they were witnessing. So why should we give the slightest credence to what they thought right. of the issue, right? And all of this bullshit might be like a little less objectionable if Scalia actually consistently yeah. applied it. But he's not actually an originalist, just like he doesn't actually believe in judicial restraint. Because no one's actually an originalist, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And, like, when it comes to women's rights or gay rights, Scalia was happy to claim that the Constitution didn't protect them because it would not have been understood that way at the time. But there are tons of areas of the Constitution where his originalist analysis seems to disappear or at least take a back seat. Right. Right. At the time of the founding, the First Amendment protection of free speech was paper thin. Uh, we've mentioned on the show that the founders generation passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which allowed for the jailing of opponents of the government, made the publication of certain criticism mm -hmm. of the government illegal. Right. Not a single person believes the First Amendment would allow that today. Yeah. And you might look at that and think, well, that's for the right, best, right? Right. And sure, yeah. it is. But Scalia also believed that the First Amendment protected corporate political spending and commercial speech, right? 
Like that concept is incredibly distant from what we would understand of the founder's view of the First Amendment. He believed that the 14th Amendment forbidden uh, affirmative action, yeah. despite the fact that the Congress that passed the 14th Amendment also passed legislation that looked quite conceptually right. similar to affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, and also despite the fact that uh, Scalia's own <laughs> confirmation was aided by some <laughs> some light affirmative action considering... Uh, there was genuine discussion of the fact that he was the first Italian-American Supreme Court justice, and uh, there's almost no question that that aided his confirmation. Yeah, absolutely. In his jurisprudence, he essentially ignores the fact that the 14th and 15th Amendments were meant to empower black populations and disempower southern state governments, right? He used originalist grounds to cast doubt on the idea that the Equal Protection Clause protects voting rights, but then turned around and used that same clause to hand the 2000 presidential election right. to George W. Bush. His reliance on originalism became heavier when it was necessary to reach conservative political outcomes. And when it wasn't, he just readily discarded it. Yeah. And, you know, like there's something uniquely absurd, I think, about Scalia's hypocrisy in how you have like on the one hand, his entire presentation of his jurisprudential approach as like, I'm the most principled guy ever. I'm the one true noble figure in the law. But then on the other hand, like it's so fucking obviously hypocritical. It's just so like quintessentially conservative, right? Like just calling something principled is not principled. Just saying this is smart and this is the only way it can be done with a shit eating <laughs> grin on your face over and over and over again does not make it so, you know, like I wish I could really encapsulate the vibes off of this gluttonous right. maniac for listeners who maybe never heard or, or, or saw him speak. Um, Scalia was a smarmy, contemptuous, arrogant yes. piece of shit. He would say something crude and reductive about the law and he would smile. He invited you to tell him that he was wrong so he could laugh haughtily and call you stupid to your face, mm -hmm. right? His classic response when he was asked in interviews about Bush v. Gore was get over it. He would right, literally right. say get over it. Like just the most unbelievable asshole in terms of uh, a public intellectual and, and a public intellectual who led a life of public service and whose intellect should theoretically right. be accountable to the people, right? And over and over again, it's beyond obvious what shoddy work this jurisprudential theory building really was. But he's known as like the brains and brawn of this movement, of this psycho shit. And so the, the hypocrisy is just really disgusting. It really is. Before we continue, uh, I am out of ice and I would like to refresh my glass. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. If you're an enemy of the court, we really hope that you're enjoying this first premium episode. If you're an arch enemy of the court, you are a maniac. And the first week of hanging out on Slack has been wild. Thank you so much. So we're back. <laughs> and now for the good stuff. Buckle up, kids, <laughs> boys and girls. Let's talk about textualism. Yay. So the, the final piece of what is, you know, ostensibly Scalia's judicial philosophy, in addition to judicial restraint and originalism. And so to be clear, when we talk about textualism, we're not talking about the Constitution. What we're talking about our laws that Congress passed and something called statutory interpretation, right. which is like how courts read those laws. Right. And if you're not a lawyer, you might be like, don't they just fucking read the laws? Like, what does that, what does that even mean? Right. It sounds weird. But so a classic sort of hypothetical is like, imagine a, a municipal ordinance that says simply, look, no vehicles in the park seems simple enough, but then someone collapses in the park has a major cardiac event, onlookers call uh, 911, and an ambulance shows up and enters the park because the guy is, you know, somewhere in the park, right? Mm -hmm. Is the ambulance driver a lawbreaker? He brought a vehicle into the park, right? This is a question that could come before court. Right. For a strict textualist in the mode of Antonin Scalia himself, uh, the answer is unequivocal. The ambulance driver is a lawbreaker. Right. Because what textualism says is, look, the, the text says what the text says. You can look at dictionaries. You can look at other parts of the law to try to define the terms. But an ambulance is a vehicle, right? There's like no defining your way out of that. And uh, the law has no exceptions. It says no vehicles in the park. Right. That's it. Yeah. 
Now, if you were a judge and you're not insane, you might ask some different questions, right? Like, what's this law trying to do, right? Is it really meant to cover instances like this? Did the lawmakers anticipate a scenario like this? Did they talk about this at all when they were drafting the law? You know, and what? why can't we just use some common sense here, right? Like, yeah, throwing an ambulance driver in jail seems insane. Right. Like, what if... The law is just one provision of something called the Beautification of Our Beloved Park Act. And all the other provisions are like, you can only have two buildings in the park. You have to have X number of flowers in the park. You have to have X number of trees in the park and no vehicles in the park. Right. Well, it would be insane to say this law that's all about the aesthetics of the park was actually intended to and should act as an impediment to delivery of life-saving medical treatment. Right. 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 But textualism doesn't have any room for that. Textualism says you don't enact legislative intent. You don't enact the, you know, the legislature's purpose. You enact a law. And that's the text. Right. The text is the text and the law is the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have written an exemption for ambulances, but they didn't. And, you know, imagine right now you might be thinking like, Michael, that's crazy. (laughs) That can't be right. (laughs) Right. Like that sounds like something like a third grader would say. Or when did you guys learn to diagram sentences? That that was in elementary school, right? That was like fifth grade. Middle school, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I have absolutely no recollection of this. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Peter, you never diagrammed a sentence where you're like underline the subject. And no, like, that, that comes to me naturally, like like Mozart in a piano, you know? Just keep going, Michael. We don't have to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. I just imagine Scalia like doing that shit in middle school or whatever and being like, this is the coolest. Right. Yeah. Absolutely seen. nerded out. <laughs> I'm going to build my entire philosophy around this, yeah. <laughs> around the basic rules of grammar. One right. day I will be the main sentence guy. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will compare. But yeah, so this is it. This is like the titan of conservative legal thinking. And this is like the crown jewel in his catalog. If you ask academics where he was most influential, what his like longest lasting legacy would be, it's textualism in statutory interpretation. Right. Yeah. Justice Kagan famously said, we're all textualists now right. you know, right. because of uh, Antonin Scalia, sort of noting that he- Antonin Gregory Scalia. <laughs> Greggy, as I call him. <laughs> right. She didn't mean it literally. What she meant is like- if you are a judge now, you have to reckon with this, right? You have to reckon with the text of the law. Right, right. Right. And so there are there's some obvious problems with this. Like, for one, it puts, like, insanely unreasonable demands on the legislature to, like, peer through time and space in order to ascertain every possible scenario in which the law's meaning might be brought into question, right? Yeah. Like Doctor Strange and the Avengers, right? Like yeah. 14 million different outcomes. And we need a subprovision for this and a subprovision for that. So that makes it harder, right? It makes it harder for legislatures to pass meaningful laws. It handcuffs Congress, which he likes, right? Because Scalia believes in a weak federal government, right? right? At least when it comes to policies he dislikes, <laughs> he wants to see a weak federal government. It's also not really useful. Like on most cases that actually come before the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, there's just no right or wrong answer, right? Like a classic example is like, we all know it's illegal to deal drugs. And turns out it's even more illegal to carry a firearm while while dealing drugs. Who would have guessed? But the question is, what, what does carrying a firearm mean? This came before the Supreme Court. Obviously, if you have like a gun in your hand, that's carrying a firearm. Sure. But what if it's holstered? What if it's in a glove box? Right. What if the glove box is locked and you're not even in the car? Right. Right. Like you can stare at a dictionary for however the fuck long you want <laughs> at the definition of carry. It's not going to give you an answer as to what this means. Right. Right. At some point, you have to make a judgment call about exactly. right. what the right. best interpretation is. Right. Right. So it's stupid. Textualism is stupid. It's absurd and it's useless. But even worse, it can be actively harmful, right? Because this sort of strict approach, like the ambulance example, if you're locking up ambulance drivers, that's a problem. It makes the law harsher. Yes. But worse than all of that is that it's just bullshit all the way down, Mm -hmm. right? Like you may have noticed this is a theme, but Antonin Scalia was a hypocritical piece of shit. Right. And 
when push came to shove, even when the text of the law is clear and unambiguous, if it creates policy Tony Scalia didn't like, he was more than happy to fucking throw it out the window and replace it with his own policy judgments. Absolutely. And that's not an exaggeration. We covered a case called uh, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez. If you haven't listened to that episode, I really think you should. I think it's one of our strongest. Yeah. And that was a case about uh, how the law dealt with restraining orders. And the thing is, the law said that police shall use every reasonable means to enforce a restraining order and shall arrest someone violating it. Yep. And, you know, that might sound to you like, look, they have to use every reasonable means and they have to arrest someone. And Scalia says, well, actually, no. (laughs) The thing is, uh, sometimes even when the law says you have to do something, it really means, well, it's optional to do that. Yeah. Right. You don't you don't have to do that. And the exact reasoning, if I'm remembering correctly, was that historically cops haven't had to. So why should they have to now? Right. Uh, right. Even though that's the whole reason that they passed the law. Right. Right. Even though this recently passed law was aimed precisely at this problem of cops not handling this well. Exactly. So this is absurd on its face. Yes. But uh, when you consider the facts of the case, it's it's horrific. Yeah. yeah. Right. Castle Rock was about a woman who had a restraining order against her ex-husband. He violated it. He kidnapped her three children. She begged and pleaded with the cops to go find the kids for something like eight or nine hours. They did jack shit. Mm-hmm. And the guy ended up killing the kids. Yeah. And Scalia straight up abandoned textualism in the most like obvious, undeniable way in order to protect the cops from any repercussions for that. Right. Because he's a fucking monster. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the thing. Textualism is not about restraining judges. It's not about finding objective answers. It's always about dressing up his reactionary ideology, which is why he so quickly abandoned it. Yes. Right. Because he's a reactionary first. He's like a politician second, and then he's a judge. Say it, King. Say that, King. Michael, when you um, talked about the the Doctor Strange comparison, I imagine Scalia doing the Thanos, like, I am inevitable. <laughs> and then he snaps his fingers and black people can't vote. You know? <laughs> The Voting Rights Act just like turns to dust (laughs) and floats away. It disintegrates. Yeah. Uh So, you know, Scalia famously venomous in his writing. Right. And I think it's important to understand that that famous venom suspiciously only really shows up on like hot button culture war stuff. Right. And he really delights in embracing the cruelty of those positions. And again, sort of just hiding behind his ostensible methods of constitutional interpretation. So to really understand how much of a total piece of shit he is, on top of how much of a hypocrite he is, you really need to understand how much of his jurisprudence was characterized by just like seething reactionary rage. Yeah. And truly, like nothing makes me cackle more than um, some of his absolutely unhinged dissents, especially the one that came to mind when we were planning this episode for me is a case. I think that I read this in one L con law, but I definitely read it uh, in 14th Amendment, my 2L year. And it's a case called U.S. v. Virginia. In that case, women were suing to say that they had been unconstitutionally banned from admission to a state school in Virginia, the Virginia Military Institute. You know, this is a famous decision in which Ruth Bader Ginsburg writes for a seven justice majority that it violates the 14th Amendment for the state to ban women from the Virginia Military Institute. And Scalia is actually the sole dissenter. Only eight justices um, (laughs) decided that case. So it was seven to one. And the entire dissent is this like incredibly acerbic and sanctimonious diatribe. It starts with, quote, Today, the court shuts down an institution that has served the people of the Commonwealth of Virginia with pride and distinction for over a century and a half. <laughs> Eat shit, loser. I don't give a fuck how long a school has been That's around. That's like from the about right. section of the fucking uh, Virginia military. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, wait. I have more quotes. Later, he says, 
Quote, in any event, regardless of whether the court's rationale leaves some small amount of room for lawyers to argue, it ensures that single sex public education is functionally dead. And like, okay, you're not just like crying like a bitch over this. It's like, look at what you're crying about, bro. This is fucking embarrassing. Like, it's just that like you have to let girls into the school. Like, come on. But the best part is the end where Scalia quotes the entirety of what is essentially like a dumbass poem. He just copy pastes that shit into his dissent. And it's like his grand finale where he's really trying to hit home how VMI and all male schools are, are the real victims here, you know? So there's this dumb poem called The Code of the Gentleman that all VMI first-year students were required to keep on their person at all times. The Code of the Gentleman, by the way, indistinguishable from bro code. It's just the more formal name. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what makes this so hilarious. Right. The Code of the Gentleman starts, quote, without a strict observance of the fundamental code of honor, no man, no matter how polished, can be considered a gentleman. He is the descendant of the knight, the crusader. He is the defender of the defenseless and the champion of justice, or he is not a gentleman. Okay, now. Gentlemen before dames. <laughs> That's how it starts, okay? Yeah. So the code of the gentleman says stupid shit, and this is in the opinion. It says stupid shit like uh, a gentleman, quote, does not go to a lady's house if he is affected by alcohol. He is temperate in the use of alcohol. He does not lose his temper nor exhibit anger, fear, hate, embarrassment, ardor, or hilarity in public. Did, did Scalia well, read this part of the I was going to say, say, we have some first-person <laughs> testimony that he was not temperate on the consumption of alcohol. In public. And that is where we get to the finale of this episode. Anthony Scalia did not <laughs> adhere to the code of the gentleman. <laughs> and that is my primary complaint about the man. Yeah. Hypocrisy all the way down. It goes on. A gentleman does not hail a lady from a club window. A gentleman can become <laughs> what? what he wills. I to always be. said that. A gentleman does not hail a lady from a club window. <laughs> it's <laughs> just it's it's just objectively correct. I've I've been saying it. Yeah. <laughs> And then here's asshole smarmy Scalia with the finish. He says, I do not know whether the men of VMI lived by this code. Perhaps not. But it is powerfully impressive that a public institution of higher education still in existence sought to have them do so. I do not think any of us, women included, will be better off for its destruction. (laughs) Again, he's talking about girls. Going to a school. <laughs> okay? And he's losing his fucking mind. Melodramatic <laughs> fucking drama queen over here. God. You know, look, say what you want about it. Before I read that pamphlet, I was hailing ladies from windows almost every day. Yeah. Just day and night addicted to Maybe, it. Maybe I think Scalia's most famous dissents were the uh, the gay rights dissents. Oh, right? Yeah. From the mid-1990s through 2015, the court had a string of cases that expanded LGBT rights under the 14th Amendment. Scalia dissented in every single one of them, throughout them extremely mad that laws regulating sexual morality were falling out of constitutional favor. So So mad. In Romer v. Evans, 1996, the court struck down a Colorado state constitutional amendment that prevented state and local laws from recognizing homosexuality as a protected class. So if a local government wanted to pass a law saying you can't discriminate against uh, people based on their sexual preference, this state constitutional amendment would prohibit that. And so the court strikes that down. Right. And Scalia in this... (laughs) I forgot about this. I mean, it's an incredible dissent. Scalia dissents, and he describes gays... Keep in mind, this is 1996. Describes gays as, quote, a politically powerful minority. Yeah. Which is like a theme that he constantly returns to in these opinions. Mm. He says, quote, this court has no business imposing upon all Americans the resolution favored by the elite class from which the members of this institution are selected, pronouncing that, quote, animosity, unquote, toward homosexuality is evil. I vigorously dissent. Okay. (laughs) His point, of course, is that like regular Americans don't approve of homosexuality. The approval comes from like frilly cultural elites. Right. He later says that, quote, those who engage in homosexual conduct tend to reside in disproportionate numbers in certain communities and, of course, care about homosexual rights issues much more ardently than the public at large. 
They possess political power much greater than their numbers, both locally and statewide. Quite understandably, they devote this political power to achieving not merely a grudging social toleration, (laughs) but full social (laughs) acceptance of homosexuality. Oh, my God. Wow. I was going to give you grudging social toleration, but now you're demanding acceptance. (laughs) So, first of all, Mm. the idea that there are more gays in what I assume he means (laughs) as, like, cosmopolitan areas, right? Right. Um, Right. As a rule, like, clearly wrong and a peek into what he really thinks, which is that homosexuality is unnatural and perhaps the product of, like, cultural looseness, right? too many genes in the household uh, rather than (laughs) biology. And there's this other idea riddled throughout this opinion that LGBT people are like uniquely politically powerful. Again, this is 1996. It's literally illegal for them to have sex in many states. Not a single state will legalize gay marriage until 2004. Not one. Right. Right. This is right right when the federal government passed a a law called the Defense of Marriage Act aimed straight at gay marriage. Right. Exactly. Right. Another quote. I had thought that one could consider certain conduct reprehensible, murder, for example, or polygamy or cruelty to animals and could exhibit even animus towards such conduct. Surely that is the only sort of animus at issue here. Moral disapproval of homosexual conduct. Oh, God. I don't need to do a rebuttal there. Birds of a feather. That is a big theme in his opinions where he's saying, like, you know, why do we know that murder is bad? Well, because society tells us it's bad. Same thing with homosexuality. Done and done. You know, if if you're going to say that murder is bad, then surely you can say that being gay is bad, too. Right. That's the same sort of vibe. (laughs) It's bizarre. Um, All right. Next. Lawrence v. Texas. 2003, the court one. strikes down laws that outlaw. This is, this is yeah, the, the court strikes down sodomy laws, right? Laws that outlaw sodomy, right. uh, homosexual sodomy sure. uh, specifically. And Scalia, of course, very upset. He uses the opportunity to complain about how the court is quick to overturn precedent here, but not in the case of Roe v. Wade, which he refers to as judicially created abortion rights. Right. Here's a quote from Scalia's dissent in Lawrence v. Texas. Today's opinion is the product of a court, which is the product of a law profession culture that has largely signed on to the so-called homosexual agenda, by which I mean the agenda promoted by some homosexual activists directed at eliminating the moral opprobrium that has traditionally attached to homosexual conduct. (laughs) End quote. I love this because he uses the term homosexual agenda, which is just like talk radio level commentary. Absolutely. But then he's like, but then he's like, okay, I have to dress this up. Like, let me let me define it so that you know that I'm speaking a little more fancily. Yes. Yes. Than like a Rush Limbaugh. Right. Right. Seconds after using the term homosexual agenda, he complains that the court, quote, has taken sides in the culture war. Mm -hmm. End Mm -hmm. quote. Now, I assume that what he imagines he's saying is that it shouldn't. But what he's actually saying is that it should take the other side. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Taking the wrong side in the culture war. Another quote. Yes. Many Americans do not want persons who openly engage in homosexual conduct as partners in their business, as scoutmasters for their children, as teachers in their children's schools, or as boarders in their home. They view this as protecting themselves and their families from a lifestyle that they believe to be immoral and destructive. Mm. This is his favorite tactic in gay rights stuff. Where he's just doing the the Trump thing. Like many people are saying, you know, yes, many people exactly. are saying they don't want their uh, they don't want gays as boarding in their home. You right. know, <laughs> um, one of the weirdest things uh, uh, in his gay rights stuff says, quote, let me be clear that I have nothing against homosexuals or any other group promoting their agenda through normal democratic means. Social perceptions of sexual and other morality change over time, and every group has the right to persuade its fellow citizens that its view of such matters is the best. That homosexuals have achieved some success in that enterprise is attested to by the fact that Texas is one of the few remaining states that criminalize private, consensual homosexual acts. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm literally just staring because I don't... Sky. We should say, though, congratulations, homosexuals, on all your success. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right. yes. oh my God. It's, it's, again, it's 2003. Right. <laughs> 2003. Not a single state 
has legalized gay marriage at this point. Not a single right. state. Right. But you can't get thrown in jail for engaging in gay sex in most states. <laughs> right. And so that's a fucking success. Right. right? That's, Don't get greedy. Right. That's more than grudging social acceptance. That is. If you want to have gay sex without getting arrested, go to Louisiana. OK, don't stay in Texas. <laughs> and the last of the gay rights cases that Scalia was on the court for, Obergefell v. Hodges, which, of course, yes. legalized gay marriage uh, this nationwide. Is great dissent. Scalia starts off this dissent with, quote, I write separately to call attention to this court's threat to American democracy. My God. <laughs> the rest of this dissent is basically the same as the others, and we don't need to rehash it. The only other thing I'll say about this one is that over the 20 years between these cases, right, yeah. Romer in 1996 and Obergefell in 2015, Scalia's central point became substantially weaker. Yeah. Scalia was always saying, like, look, this isn't for the courts to decide. What's happening is this tiny political elite is imposing their will on the rest of the country. He often says that explicitly right, in, right. These, in these opinions. Yeah. But by 2015, that's not really true, right? Gay marriage is broadly popular, has gained favor over the course of the last decade. Yeah. And it's Scalia who is the outlier, right? He's the one living in a small and insular bubble. And as I was reading through these dissents, I have to say it, it's quite gratifying to read his final one. In the initial opinions, he's a bully, right? Just raging at this broadly discriminated against minority who is struggling to win their rights. But his Obergefell descent is characterized by what can only be described as loser energy. Yes. Right? He, he, he <laughs> yes. just sounds like a loser who is mad about losing. Yes. And I found great peace in that. Yeah. I, absolutely. The last thing I want to talk about with Scalia is not a case per se. It's protagonist of the show 24, Jack Bauer. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. yes. Now, Scalia had a position on torture, which is that it's unconstitutional if you use it as a punishment because the Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. Right. But not mm -hmm. as an interrogation tactic because that's not punishment. So cruel and unusual punishment doesn't apply. <laughs> no. you, you get it? Right. No moral hazards there. No, no lurking right. loophole no. issues. Yeah. Now, he, in 2007, was at a law conference in Canada where a Canadian judge, when they were talking about torture and terrorism, said, quote, Thankfully, security agencies in our countries do not subscribe to the mantra, what would Jack Bauer do? And Justice Scalia <laughs> cuts in. Because Jack Bauer, like famously in the show 24, would like, would torture, torture people. That's yeah. right. Most of 24 is Jack Bauer saving entire cities or nations or whatever by torturing a terrorist who has the information. Right. Pulling his fingernails out. Right. Gets the correct information. Right. And then he uses that information to save the day. Right. So this Canadian judge at this conference says, quote, thankfully, security agencies in all of our countries do not subscribe to the mantra, what would Jack Bauer do? And Justice Scalia butts in with this quote. Jack Bauer saved Los Angeles. <laughs> he saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Are you going to convict Jack Bauer? Oh, he then God. posed a series of questions to the fellow judges. Say that criminal law is against him. You have the right to a jury trial. Is any jury going to convict Jack Bauer? I don't think so. <laughs> Jack Bauer is a fictional character. <laughs> so... <laughs> Scalia's point, if I'm trying to be nice here, <laughs> is that there are circumstances where the morality is not so clear, mm -hmm. right? And I think he's right. The, the circumstances posed on the show 24 <laughs> are, in fact, morally ambiguous. Right. To a point where you can say that it might be morally just for Jack Bauer to be torturing those dudes in that specific instance because they always have absolute irrefutable proof <laughs> right. that those guys are right. the terrorists and there is an imminent threat of like a nuclear bomb right. going off, right? And you only have 24 hours. That's why they call this show 24. <laughs> now, the problem with this is that that's not how the CIA did it. What the CIA did was round up people without charges, without right. proof, many of whom were shown after the fact to have not been involved in any terrorist activity and torture them severely right. for weeks, mm -hmm. right. months, years on end. They didn't get any good intelligence out of this either, which is what right. Scalia said is the point, right? That you can't punish, but you can 
torture for interrogation, but like this yielded nothing useful. Right, exactly. And so to create a rule about torture that is dependent upon Jack Bauer (laughs) in Fox's hit show 24 seems like maybe it's not the smoothest move. No. Again, this is a justice of the Supreme Court. Right. Jack Bauer saved Los Angeles is the the first words out of his mouth. It's this is freshman level stoned dorm chat. But like the thing is, it's not just that like this is not how the CIA did it. It's like this is different in kind from how the world works. Like we're not presented with this level of certainty in the real world. Right. Exactly. That's why our laws are written the way they are. Because we understand that we live in a world where certainty is never absolute. And so, like, the burden is on the state before it uses violence, right? But Scalia says, like, first assume that's not the world we live in. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So I I hope by now you have a pretty clear idea who uh, Scalia is. But, like, something we've just – we've talked about. When prepping this episode that I want to make sure like comes through clearly, explicitly, is that more than anything else, Scalia was, as as Peter has put it, a MAGA style chud. Yeah. He was a fucking chud. Right. And when doing research for this episode, I found a piece that he wrote for a symposium in 1979 when he compares affirmative action to Nazi Germany. He says it creates debtor races and creditor races and says that the very idea of restorative justice for historically oppressed people is offensively racist. When you were talking about that, uh, that piece, Michael, it, it struck me that he frames it purely in terms of the negative impact on white people. Right. Of, of yes. affirmative action. Right. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Exactly. Rather than focusing on the idea of restorative justice as, you know, uh, as helping anyone, he instead is obsessed with the fact that it, in his view, demonizes whites. Right. Right. And and so this guy, like he's making a name for himself in like the 80s and 90s, right at the same time as like Rush Limbaugh was becoming Mm -hmm. a a fixture on the right. R.I.P. (laughs) R.I.P. That's right. Mm -hmm. Another dead piece of shit. And Fox (laughs) News as well, right? This was like the ascendancy of Fox News. And I think the proper way to understand Scalia is that he's like a legal academic version of Rush. Absolutely. It comes through in his policy preferences and it comes through in the language and the venom of his dissents. And uh, a big reason he became popular in my opinion, is precisely because he like he knows that language, right? All his opinions are inflected with that like sort of right wing talk radio feel, right? Those vibes, that energy. And that's his intended audience, right? Unlike other justices who are like, you know, doing logical proofs and shit in their dissents. Right. Like he's not writing for law professors. He's not writing for judges. He's writing for people. Mm-hmm. He's writing dissents that he hopes get sound bites on the news. Yes. And he hopes are stoking right wing reaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's it's politics and it's a politics that uh, anticipates Trump. Right. And yes. in a lot of ways paved the way for Trump. He yes. was like. You know, he died before Trump took office, but I think he is the prototypical Trumpian judge. Yeah. 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 I think it's important to say this just kind of popped in my head. Scalia is really known for broadcasting his ideology and his philosophy sort of couched in a legal jurisprudence, a legal mm-hmm. philosophy. Mm-hmm. But relative to a lot of other judges with with similar terms on the Supreme Court, he didn't write a lot of important majority opinions like the kind you read in law school. Right. You're reading his dissents. I think I only read like one Scalia majority opinion in law school. Mm-hmm. Right. One or right. Two. And not in one L classes, for sure. What he did do was interviews. Right. What he mm-hmm. did do is go around the country and talk a lot to law students, talk at mm-hmm. Federalist Society events, stuff like that. So that's what Scalia was good at, right? And that sort of highlights, I think, what you're saying, Michael, which is that he was a part of this culture war stuff. And that's what he was good right. at. 
He's a propagandist. Yeah, exactly. He's more he's better understood as a as a PR uh, operation than a jurist. Yes. Right. And look, we said a number of times that like, right, like his judicial philosophies were just like empty vehicles for ideology. But I think it's important to like name that ideology, to describe that ideology, because just saying it's, you know, ideology, it's it's a euphemism. Right. It's the ideology of like white people beating black people who had the temerity to sit at like a whites only counter, right? It's the ideology of lynchings and burning crosses. It's the ideology of terrorists who kill abortion providers. It's the ideology of Rush Limbaugh laughing at gay people who died from AIDS. It's the ideology of harassing trans kids into committing suicide. It's the ideology of an obscene number of Texans Right. Freezing to death, saying that that's the market at work yeah. because it uh, has maximized profit. Yep. That's the ideology that Scalia is trying to further. That's the ideology that he's pushing behind a veil of legal and academic jargon. Yeah. And the reason he's a hero to conservatives is because yeah. he did it better than anyone else. Right. Yeah. He dressed it up better than anyone else and made it respectable. Yeah. And I think the biggest irony about his career is that he ostensibly built it around the idea of taking politics out of judging, but was easily more responsible than anyone else on the court in that time for inserting politics into the jurisprudence of the court. Absolutely. To wrap up, I wanted to discuss a quote of his. He once famously said, I'm an originalist. I'm a textualist. I'm not a nut. Hmm. What he meant was that he would not take originalism or textualism to ridiculous conclusions, which is a reasonable approach, but it undermines his entire thesis. Right. Because who gets to decide what's a ridiculous conclusion? Who gets to decide when originalism or textualism goes too far? The judge does, obviously. Right. And how do they decide when it's gone too far? Well, they apply their values and their sense of reasonableness and fairness, which is well and good unless you're Antonin Scalia, who spent his whole career arguing that judges are in no position to make such determinations. Right. right? His philosophy is so fundamentally flawed that if you pressed him hard enough, he'd always concede that it's not really his philosophy at all. Exactly. At the end of the day, Scalia was just another judge making determinations about the law based on his own values, his own views of, of right and wrong. And what that means is that at the end of the day, while he was unquestionably influential, his work as a judge wasn't really anything unique or special. It was just effective PR for lawyers who want to dress up their conservatism as something different, as something objective and intellectual. Right. Yeah. yeah. As yeah. everyone listening to this probably knows, the epilogue to the Antonin Scalia story was the Merrick Garland debacle. Yeah. With Scalia's seat ultimately being functionally stolen and given to Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. And as terrible as that was for progressives and the left, I find it sort of fitting, right? Mm-hmm. Justice Scalia played politics with that seat his whole career. So it was nice to see the tradition carried out in his honor. Yes. <laughs> Once in an interview, Scalia told the interviewer that he believed that the devil was real. Yeah. And he caught a lot of flack for that. But I imagine it must have been really validating when he finally met him. (laughs) Burn in hell, Scalia. Bye, nasty. See you next week. (laughs) Next week, San Antonio Independent School District v. Rodriguez. A case about whether being poor is bad (laughs) or if it's just totally okay. Special guest, Alec Karakatsanis. Yes. He is a civil rights lawyer whose recent work has targeted the cash bail system in the United States. Has a lot to say about poverty and the law. So should be fun. I'm so excited. Thank you very much for uh, subscribing to our Patreon, listening to our first Patreon episode. Extra long. Uh, we're going to keep these real <laughs> chunky. So enjoy. We love you very much. Thank you for your support. Thank you. Thank you. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Spatial Relations.